Good day, everyone. Welcome to part 15 of this series on Knowing God. Today's topic is entitled, The Fire of God's Love. Please join me in prayer, our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the assurance you have given to us that as we apply our minds to study and understand your word, your spirit will teach us. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. But interestingly also, the Bible also says that God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now God being love and God being a consuming fire might bring to our minds conflicting impressions. But dear listener, there is no conflict in God. We do not serve a God who has a split personality or who is bipolar. No. It's not that these are two opposite aspects of his character. Because the Bible itself teaches us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And God certainly is not a divided house. There is perfect harmony in him. So if God is love, and God is a consuming fire, it can only mean that God is a consuming fire of love. Well, what do I mean by this? We will see as we go through. But let's begin with a story. This story is told of a corporate executive of a very large company who was quite arrogant and treated his staff very disrespectfully. It goes on to say that there was one person in particular that he treated very badly above all the rest, and that was the janitor who worked as a cleaner inside the office building and also maintained the grounds on the outside. So this janitor would always say good morning or whatever greeting was appropriate, and he would not even answer. And if this executive did respond, it would be an insult or some sarcastic comment. This was the way it was at all times. Besides, he would always criticize and seek to find fault with the janitor's work, even when there was no fault to be found, just looking for a reason to fire him. Eventually, one day, he just called the janitor into his office and fired him. The janitor pleaded for his job, stating how he had a family to take care of, but none of this made a difference. He was unjustly fired. Nevertheless, one day this executive took sick. He passed out and was rushed to the hospital. It was discovered that he had a chronic problem. In fact, both his kidneys had failed and emergency dialysis had to be done. It got to the point where he badly needed to get a kidney or he was going to die. A few family members came forward to test to see if they would be a compatible donor of a kidney. Because, you know, you can live with one healthy kidney and still live a pretty much normal life. But none of them were compatible, and most of his relatives were unwilling to even consider donating a kidney to him. So he was there languishing in the hospital, being kept alive on machines, and seeming as if he was going to die, until the doctors announced that there was a donor for that organ that he needed. Someone had come in and tested, and it turned out to be a perfect match. Blood type and everything else was matching. The person, however, wanted to remain anonymous. They just didn't want their identity to be exposed. And so the operation was done to remove one of the kidneys from the donor and to put that kidney in this executive. It was successful. He went through a period of recovery, and after a couple of months, he was back on the job. 
He kept a low profile for a while, but gradually became his old self again. The same belligerent, disrespectful, and arrogant attitudes returned. Now, things continued like this until a few years later, this corporate manager was out playing golf with some of his corporate buddies. He had gotten even higher up the corporate ladder, being promoted to a higher position and all that. And among them that day were also members of the board of directors for the company, some shareholders and other investors. All were there for a day of golfing and celebrating the huge profits that the company had made over the previous year. Now, one of the recently appointed board members was a retired doctor, and they struck up a conversation. The doctor thought he looked somewhat familiar. It turned out that this was the doctor who had headed the surgical team that gave him the kidney transplant. He was glad to see that he was doing so well even after a few years, and they struck up a friendship. Eventually, this executive asked the doctor the question that had been bugging his mind for the past five years. He said, you know, I've always been wondering who donated the kidney. Not even my wife knows. She said the hospital told her the donor wanted to remain anonymous. He said, can you tell me who was the donor? Where did he come from? Just any information you can give. The doctor held out for a while. But after a few drinks, he eventually gave in and gave him the name and description of the person. The doctor still remembered the janitor quite vividly like it was the day before because he himself had always wondered why someone would make such a great sacrifice and want to keep it a secret. It turned out that the janitor was the one who donated a kidney to the boss who had treated him so badly and fired him. Upon hearing this, this corporate executive was silent for a long time. He couldn't even finish his golf game and left in a hurry. He was so filled with guilt and remorse that it was agonizing to his conscience. The sudden realization that the person that he had treated so cruelly had actually pretty much given him a part of his life and was the reason he was alive for the past five years and the reason he was still able to enjoy life, it was a heavy weight for his conscience to bear. He rushed back to the office. He went to the past employees' files. He searched the records to find the address of the janitor. He got in his car. He drove to a low-income neighborhood on the other side of town. He knocked on the door. But the person who opened the door didn't know this janitor. He said he had just moved here three years prior. On his way back to his car, he asked one of the neighbors who told him the janitor and his family had fallen on hard times and moved to an even poorer part of town. He had lost his job about five years earlier and shortly after he had had surgery to remove a kidney. For what reason, he didn't know. And as a result, they could not afford the rent. They had kept in touch for a while, so he gave this man the address. And this executive rushed there. And this time, a free-looking lady opened the door. This was the janitor's wife. He could see poverty all over the place. When he asked for her husband, she broke down in tears and said he had died two months earlier. He was having a hard time getting a job, and things were just hard, and he took it to heart. The stress eventually led to chronic hypertension and damaged his kidney. The executive was stunned and numb. He couldn't get words out. The wife continued speaking. She said, he only had one kidney. His insurance was through his job, but after he lost that job, they haven't been able to get insurance. And when his kidney got damaged due to stress, they had no insurance. 
and he held on as long as he could, but then he died. The executive's knees lost all their strength as he heard these words, and he was on the ground weeping and saying, I killed him, I killed him, I killed him, I killed him. And he repaid me by saving my life. From then on, he could have no peace. He was filled with regret and remorse. His conscience was in torment. He could not function as before. A few weeks later, he resigned his position and spent the rest of his life doing charitable work, helping the poor and destitute to improve their lives. This was the only thing that gave him a little peace. Well, that was our story. Now, much research has been done and many books have been written about the crippling effects of guilt and remorse. There is a sense in which mental and emotional pain can be much greater than any physical pain. And that is why many people who go through this kind of deep, agonizing emotional pain of regret and remorse, often enough, they commit suicide. There is a certain pain, a mental and emotional kind of pain, which comes from guilt and remorse upon the conscience, which can be even worse than physical pain. An agonizing effect on the mind when evil treatment is met and responded to with good. This is why when this step fails to soften the heart of the offender, overwhelmed with guilt, people sometimes commit suicide. Just to escape the agony of conscience, as in the case of Judas. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but always follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. And again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20 and 21, he writes, Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When cruelty is met with kindness and hatred and anger is met with love, it creates a kind of burning of the conscience. And sometimes it is the last ditch effort, the only thing which can reach and touch the conscience of one who is hardened in enmity. Sometimes this is the only way left to reach them and bring them back. The apostle calls this heaping coals of fire on their head. Not an attempt to physically hurt them, but to wake up a dead conscience and hopefully bring a person to see his or herself and repent of his or her actions. Because when the offender is in need and their bitterness and hatred is responded to by love, it creates a burning effect upon the conscience. This can produce one or the other of two opposite end results based on the response of the individual. They can choose to accept the reproof of the Holy Spirit upon the conscience and be humbled into repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, or they can harden their heart against the reproof of conscience. This drives away the Spirit of God and they become hardened and entrenched in bitterness and hatred, being consumed by it. They practically write themselves off and still have to face the judgment of the lost in the end. Now notice that it is the same work upon the conscience, yet two opposite results. And so too with the love of God, dear friends. There is a saying that the same sun which melts butter hardens clay. There is no change in the sunlight. 
It is healthy and life-giving to the plants. But it falls on two different objects, and the response is dependent on what it falls upon. One is melted, one is hardened. So too with the love of God. Whatever is cherished in the heart of a person will determine whether they will be melted into repentance and surrender by the love of God, or hardened in rebellion, even as fear was hardened in his heart. It is in this way that it is meant when the Bible says God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. The glory of God is a consuming fire to sin. Hence in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, we are also told that it is the goodness of God that leads us into repentance. Thus when the sinner who is hardened in sin hears the gospel, hears about the goodness of God towards them, and comes to see the love of God, despite their sinfulness, despite all the sins they have committed, and realize that it is our sins that cause the death of Christ upon the cross. It pricks the conscience, creating a remorse for sin, and it leads them to repent and turn away from sin. The greater the pangs of conscience that are felt, the stronger the burn upon the conscience, and the deeper the repentance. But that is if the person chooses to repent. Why did Pharaoh's heart harden? God was encouraging him to repent and let the people go. We might just as well ask why the same encouraging and inspiring ministry of Jesus could produce a loving disciple like John and also a traitorous one like Judas. One was softened and the other was hardened. The same sun that softens the wax or the butter will harden the clay. Every man is exposed in some degree to the grace of Christ. The Lord is spoken of as a sun who lightens every man. Some reject the light and grow hardened. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 12 tells us. But others may accept and are softened. So the end result depends on the response of each individual. Now if you roll up a newspaper and you strike a match and put on it, it is engulfed in flames, and in a minute or two, it is all reduced to ashes. It is said to be consumed by the flames. When you burn wood, it is consumed by the fire. But consumed is also used in the sense of being burned in the conscience. A person either allows the sin to be burnt out of them, as they let it go, turn away from it, or they cling to the sin and are burned up and destroyed with it. The mind, the soul, is destroyed. The conscience is seared as with a hot iron. That kind of fire that burns in the conscience is a fire of love, and love burns away enmity. But if it's not allowed to burn away the enmity, and the person holds on to their enmity, then that person destroys themselves. They're consumed with the sin that they're clinging to. So by the scripture telling us that God is a consuming fire, it means the fire of God's love is doing the same work upon the conscience. It is this that destroys sin finally. The fire that brings a piece of log to ashes or burns down a building or acts as a lightning striking a tree, that is the fire of combustion. This kind of fire cannot destroy sin. You can destroy sinful things or physical things with this kind of fire. You can burn down a building, but you can't destroy sin itself with this. Sin itself is a principle of action in the soul. 
it stems from a sinful heart, a sinful nature. It is the principle of selfishness which seeks to destroy others and to put oneself in the place of God. It is a spiritual principle and thus can only be destroyed with a more powerful spiritual principle. So you cannot use a combustible fire to destroy selfishness. You cannot use a literal combustible fire as you would use to burn a piece of paper. You cannot use this to destroy anger and hatred and prejudice and pride out of the soul. You might destroy angry and hateful and prejudiced people, but these principles themselves remain. If you were to resurrect these people, even after a thousand years, they would come forth and continue just where they had left off in sin. Evil and sin can only be destroyed by the fire of God's love. Let's look a little bit on this fire from one biblical example. The death of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. The scripture says in Leviticus chapter 10 from verse 1, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And then it says, And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So he called them and said, Look, take these two dead bodies and take them out of the camp. But notice verse 5. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Some version says the dead men were still in their linen robes. Some version said they were still in their tunics. The version I'm reading said they carried them in their coats out of the camp. Now think about this. It says they were consumed in the temple by fire from the Lord. And yet their cousins were able to drag them out still in their clothes. Has anybody ever seen someone caught fire in their clothes? The clothes are burned. The first thing that are burned are the clothes burned off of them. But notice, the Bible says the fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, but they were still in their clothes. They weren't burned. They took them out in their clothes. Their clothes were not burned. What happened was something spiritual. It was something that took place in the conscience. There is much published literature from clinical psychologists and psychoanalysts which tells us how the sudden sense of guilt and condemnation, as if being exposed, as if being found out, is enough to kill, to crush the life out of a person. This is something that is well known. But what caused this fire to have this effect upon these men? How come it didn't have the same effect upon Moses when Moses went up to meet with God in the mountain? Moses' heart was sincere. His heart was purified by the love of God. But these men's hearts were laden with sin as they presumptuously ministered in the temple. Sin becomes exceedingly more sinful in the presence of God's glory. So understand that that fire is not destructive. It comes to cure and to bring repentance. But if the repentance is not received, if it is rejected, then in the environment of that love, whatever sin they cling to will destroy them. So it is not the love that destroys them, just like it's not the sun that makes a difference in what is melted or hardened, but it is the sin that the person cherishes and holds onto in the face of that love that takes them out. In the Bible, 
Fire is sometimes used to depict a passionate burning within the heart. For example, Songs of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. We see Solomon describing love as a fire. It says, set me as a seal or a signet upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which have a most vehement flame. In other words, a most passionate flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. In other words, it would be like an insult. Notice again, he says, that love is like a most vehement, a most passionate flame. Many waters cannot quench it. We ordinarily use water to quench a fire, don't we? And it's talking about love. Another Old Testament example. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God speaks concerning Lucifer of the period before his rebellion and banishment from heaven as Satan. Ezekiel 28 and verse 14, it says, Thou art the anointed cherub that cover it, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. What does it mean when it says that Lucifer, before he was banished from heaven, he walked in the midst of the stones of fire? Do we believe these are literal stones burning in heaven? No, dear friends. The Hebrew word used for fire here in this text is ash, which means burning. So Lucifer, before he rebelled, he walked in that burning. What is it? We'll know some more by the time we get to the last text in this study. Lucifer was an anointed covering cherub. He was the highest angel in heaven at that time. He stood in the very presence of God, dwelling in the very presence of that unwavering and infinitely passionate love of God. He had a first-hand experience of that love which God has towards him. There was no reason for his rebellion. As the scripture says, he walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, the fire of God's ever-burning love for him. Hence, God is portrayed continuously in Scripture using the metaphors or imagery of fire. At Mount Sinai, when he came to give the Ten Commandments, describing the scene Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, these words the Lord spoke unto all the assembly in the mount of the midst of the fire. Before this, when God appeared to Moses to send him to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to deliver the Israelites, God appeared to him in a burning bush. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, the scripture says, out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw, he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. John the Baptist the one who was appointed to announce the first coming and ministry of Christ. Preaching to the multitudes, he spoke of God's gift of the Holy Spirit, which would be poured out upon those who believed. And in Luke 3.16, it says, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one comes who is mightier than I. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. When the promise of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the waiting believers at Pentecost, Notice how it's described. The Bible says there were tongues of flame over everyone's head, and yet they were not being burned. 
So continuously throughout the scriptures, we see that the manifestation of God's presence through the Spirit is connected with the appearance of fire. Even in the outpouring of His blessings upon believers, tongues of fire were told upon their heads, but notice they weren't burned. And why? Because fire does not burn fire. They were in harmony with that fire. In other words, the love of God was abiding in their hearts. That fire was just a symbol of God's presence, power of the Holy Spirit that was in them and upon them. They were in one accord with each other. No one was striving for the first place. Each was his brother's keeper. There was no room for selfishness. Whatever one owned belonged to them all. They had repented of their sins to God and acknowledged their faults to each other and were reconciled to each other. The fire of God's love had been kindled in their hearts and so they could dwell in the environment of that love and not be consumed. Why? Because fire doesn't burn fire. It is impossible for the heart that is filled with hatred and selfishness and anger to feel comfortable in the environment of pure love. It would be like an off-key note in the middle of a beautiful orchestra. The purity of pure love would be like torture to the person who is filled with enmity and selfishness. Have you ever been part of a church group, maybe a small group, in which every person is just pervaded by the love of God? A church in which no one seeks to undermine or undercut another. Everyone looks out for the interest of the others. There is no gossiping, no selfishness, no isms and schisms going on. If someone else comes in who is not controlled by the same spirit, they would be very out of place. They would feel very uncomfortable or miserable in that environment if they have a different spirit. Say they were to go to one brother or sister to gossip something about another. They would be met with, I'm sorry, I cannot listen to this about my brother or sister without them being here. How about if we call them here first and then you can see what you have to say? You know what their answer would be? No, I don't want to cause no trouble. And so they'd walk away. I've done this. I know this. Then they probably go to another person and try the same thing. And if they're met with the same response, sorry, I don't believe in gossip. But if you want to say something about this person, I'd be glad to listen if I can call the person to be here. And every time they go to somebody else, they're met with the same thing. They would be miserable. The spirit that controls their heart is incompatible with the spirit that controls the others in that setting. So that person would either have to change to be comfortable in that environment or they would soon leave. So the principle of pure love is a consuming fire to the principle of selfishness. Righteousness is a consuming fire to sin. They cannot exist together. It is illustrated in the relationship between light and darkness. You walk into a totally dark room, switch on the light and what happens? The darkness flees. The light does nothing but manifest itself and the darkness is banished by its presence. But what if there was a little candle burning in a far corner in this dark room and the light is switched on? What happens? It continues to burn and its light joins and becomes assimilated with the rest of the light which now shines in that room. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. He wants his followers to be burning lamps of fire 
passionately burning with his love towards our fellow men. If we're going to live in God's everlasting kingdom, dear friends, we have to learn to reflect his character of love and his spirit will teach us. If we misunderstand the metaphors and the imagery used to describe God or his actions in the Bible, we're going to cling to our wrong understanding of his character and our relationship with God and with others will be defective. To dwell in his everlasting kingdom, everything that is not part of his character has to be burned out of us. It is a law in nature that the fate of whatever we cling to becomes our fate, F-A-T-E. So all the deceptions, all the lies, all the rebellion, all the hatred and violence has to be burned out of us by the love of God if we are to be fit for his kingdom. If we're going to reflect God's holiness, he's going to have to burn out the sin. If we're going to reflect his generosity, he has to burn out the selfishness out of us. If we're going to reflect his humility, he must burn out our pride. If we're going to reflect his truth, he has to burn out the lies out of our thinking. If we're going to experience his peace, he has to burn out all fear. And what does the Bible tell us? Perfect love casts out all fear. So what does God use to do all this burning? His love. God's only weapon is his love and the scripture says love never fails. So there is coming a time when every square inch of God's universe will be covered and filled by the fire of God's love. Sin and sinners will be no more, the Bible says. God's perfect love will be the air that we breathe, the environment that we live in. It will be the underlying principle of every thought that we think. And everything that is inconsistent with that love would have already been consumed by that time. So God is working now in this period of our probation to burn out everything out of our lives that is inconsistent with that kingdom, to get us ready to get us accustomed to living in that kingdom. Dear friends, the whole business of life is to allow us to take advantage of the opportunity to become accustomed to live in love with our fellow men. An environment in which every square inch of the universe will be defined by the passionate love of God flowing in and through the saved, his redeemed people of all ages. And to sum this up, our final scripture today comes from the book of Isaiah. I believe Isaiah states it best. Isaiah 33 and verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Interesting questions. What is this devouring fire? It is the fire that devours sin. But then, notice the next question. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings, the prophet asked. Dwell with what? With everlasting burnings? Now, if you were to ask most people what answer do they think would follow such a question, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? They would most likely say, Satan and his demons, or the wicked and the abominable, the lost, those are the ones who will dwell in everlasting burnings. But notice what answer the prophet gives in the very next verse. After he says, who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He answers himself. He says, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly 
He who does not oppress others for profit, who refuses to take bribes, who shuts his ears from hearing evil and refuses to countenance evil. So he says the righteous ones are the ones who will dwell in everlasting burnings. What must he be talking about then? Could this be the fires of hell? Not at all, dear friends. The everlasting burnings here are speaking of the fire of God's love. The righteous will bask in the glory of that love forever and ever. It will be an eternity of pure, blissful joy and happiness. Yes, dear friends, God's love is a consuming fire that seeks to save and to bring the sinner to repentance. But when the sinner rejects this love, they themselves are consumed by the sin itself in the environment of God's glory, that love. Understand, dear friends, we can only live in the environment of God's love if we become accustomed to living in it here and now. May God bless your hearts and minds and help you to believe and trust in the burning passion of His divine love for you personally. Love you all. Have a great week. 